This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Just want to say thanks for coming um, and let you know that today's briefing is being recorded. A video will be available online at www.rand.org, or you can listen to today's discussion by subscribing to Rand's Congressional Briefing Series podcast on iTunes. Uh, so, welcome to the briefing. My name is Laura Selway. I do Homeland Security for RAND's Office of Congressional Relations in Washington, D.C. Uh, just real briefly, the RAND Corporation is nonprofit, nonpartisan, and we help improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Uh, all the findings and recommendations are available as widely as possible. Um, there's more than 10,000 RAND reports and commentary available online at RAND.org. Uh, just real quick, our presenter today is Neil Robinson. He's a re research leader at RAND Europe based in the Brussels office. As a research leader, Neil recently led the feasibility study for the European Cybercrime Senator, Center, and he's presently working on a study for the European Defense Agency into a stock-taking exercise for military cyber defense capabilities across the EU and a small paper on cyber insurance. So today, Neil will be talking about uh, three RAND studies on different aspects of information sharing. And with that, I will turn it over to Neil. Thank you very much for those uh, words of introduction. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Laura said, I'm a research leader based in the RAND office in Brussels. And um, I'm going to talk to you today about three case studies on information sharing, which uh, I'm offering by way of a European perspective on these issues, which I know is very topical at the moment for many of you. It will come as no surprise to everyone in this room that uh, we are increasingly reliant upon cyberspace for a variety of social and also economic reasons. Um, the OECD commented recently that um, IT investment was more important than other non-IT forms of investment for economic growth between 2000 and 2009 across OECD countries. A study by the Pew Center for uh, American Internet Life noted that 80% of Americans were online in 2012. And cyberspace is regularly used to conduct business in the form of e-commerce, interact with government, and also socialize. And the, the social importance of cyberspace can be seen through the Arab Spring and the role that Twitter and Facebook played in galvanizing those networks. However, some cybersecurity issues threaten to jeopardize our use that we make of cyberspace. The World Economic Forum, in its uh, annual report on global risks, noted the perception of senior executive decision makers that cyber attacks were of high concern for them in 2012. On the organized crime side, there's a significant online digital underworld, which is a, almost a service-led economy. And estimates from Norton, a cybersecurity firm, uh, put the global cost of cybercrime at $388 billion for 2012. And many organisations in the public and in the private sector have been victimised in even countries, as we've seen uh, with the attacks against Estonia and Georgia in the last few years. So sharing information on different types of um, cybersecurity risks and issues can help to mitigate and address some of these risks. What type of cyber information, cybersecurity information is shared then? Well, firstly, we have technical cybersecurity data, so that's uh, traffic data, origin, destination of IP address uh, data, and also net monitoring information that internet service providers use 
to monitor and uh, manage the security of their networks. There's also threat data, which may be shared by uh, intelligence agencies or law enforcement, dealing with the modus operandi, the uh, method of operation of criminals, and also emerging threats where technology is being exploited uh, by, by, by criminals and adversaries. There's also data on risks, vulnerabilities in information systems and in cyberspace, and also the impact, the consequence of these vulnerabilities being exploited. And finally, mitigation and best practice data is shared. So success stories, how organisations have managed to successfully deal with a particular cybersecurity uh, risk, they may be encouraged to share that with others. So why does it help to share information? I think this point is really the rationale for one of the defence industrial based pilots that, that uh, has been under consideration here in the last few years. Cyber attacks cross many organisational, national and public-private boundaries. Um, mitigation requires concerted action amongst different stakeholders to successfully resolve problems which can be frequently cross-border in nature. And information provided can also have secondary benefits in terms of understanding where policy can help, the preventative benefits of certain cybersecurity policies, uh, contributing to an overall improvement in the level of cybersecurity, and also secondary effects, for example, in the market for cyber insurance. So if cyber insurance firms, if carriers know what information, what, what works in terms of cybersecurity practices, they can better price their insurance premiums. A range of different organisations participate in information sharing. We have I've listed uh, some examples up here, including CERTs, Computer Emergency Response Teams, um, but also law enforcement, <coughs> intelligence agencies, the private sector, banks, security firms. I mentioned Norton as an example earlier, and um, different government departments. So the point here is that it's a very diverse picture with respect to the different organisations and different types of organisations that are sharing cybersecurity information. There is a range of theory which um, has been discussed that applies to information sharing in the context of cyberspace. Firstly, there are economic factors, incentives to share, and to what extent uh, information asymmetry, so that's imbalances in information available uh, to parties addressing cybersecurity, may act as a disincentive to share information. But there are also social and behavioural factors, not least the perception of confidence amongst peers, uh, issues of credibility, and also an, the concept of trust, which is very nebulous, but nonetheless important, and is often cited in these information sharing arrangements as a key component. And finally, there are organisational and legal factors. These, exam for example, being the rules and laws governing information exchange, what you can and can't do with certain types of information. So, by way of uh, offering a perspective on this, we present some information on the current practice of information sharing from three case studies. Firstly, when addressing attacks against information systems in the context of information sharing between owner-operators of private telecommunications networks, uh, incident response between computer emergency response teams, and finally, more broadly, when tackling cybercrime between law enforcement units, national cybercrime units, and a range of other organisations. So, moving to our first case study, we looked at socioeconomic barriers for information exchange. So, information exchanges are a trusted forum where competitors 
uh, in this case from the telecommunications world, can get together and exchange cybersecurity-related information. They're similar to information sharing analysis centres, which you may be familiar with, except information exchanges have less government involvement. Um, in this European model, the government essentially provides a platform, a meeting room for the participants to get together and acts as a, a neutral, trusted third party to encourage, supposedly encourage information exchange. We looked at uh, information sharing in the context of 30 uh, representatives of different information exchanges across Europe. And we wanted to see which were the most important incentives and barriers when compared to those theoretical issues that I discussed earlier. So the top three most important incentives. Firstly, cost savings. Sharing information was seen to be useful in reducing the cost of operating a cybersecurity program within an organisation. And this goes back to a common point which is perhaps applicable across a range of different areas when it comes to security, that security is very much seen as a cost centre. Secondly, uh, the quality, value and use of information could encourage information sharing. And this, by this I mean that the information participants got out of the meeting has to be really juicy and really something they can act upon um, and not something they could get through other commercial channels or elsewhere. And finally, the existence of clear rules, processes and NDAs or non-disclosure agreements were seen as important as providing a common framework or a level playing field for participants so that each, everyone knew the rules of the game about what could and couldn't happen. The top three most important barriers, though, were perhaps a mirror image of those, uh, those incentives I discussed earlier. So, firstly, poor quality information. Um, if, in, if a participant in an information exchange receives some information, they have to be able to be sure that they can act on it and it won't make the situation worse within their own organisation. Secondly, there's a question about reputational risks from sharing information, and this comes up quite frequently, both in the theoretical literature and also in empirical research in this area. Um, there's concern about damage to the company, about if I tell a peer something that's happened to my firm in the context of an information sharing uh, exercise in, a, in an information exchange, and then that gets used uh, perhaps by the firm, by the competitor, to achieve some kind of competitive advantage, then our, uh, then our bottom line gets, gets damaged. Or even perhaps more broadly, if it gets out to the wider public that we've had a problem, we've had some kind of incident that we haven't been able to deal with. Um, however, I think there's an important point to note here in that the participants of these information exchanges are not necessarily the people who are able to make these risk trade-off reputational judgments because they're at the operational level in comparison to the CEOs and the chief executives who, are, who sit at the, the sort of decision-making level. So there's an interesting question there about the disconnect between the board-level understanding of cybersecurity and what goes on at the practitioner or at the operational level. And finally, the question about poor management. If the meetings are poorly run, if they're uh, unclear with their agenda, uh, if they're infrequent, then participants may lose interest and see little value in participating in these information exchanges. So that's some evidence from information exchanges in the context of telecommunications from Europe. Moving to some legal questions relating to, to uh, CERT cooperation. Um, we looked at what were the, legal, the, the most prevalent legal and regulatory barriers governing uh, or affecting the exchange of technical incident data between computer emergency response teams in Europe. So we, 
We asked um, a range of certs what their perspective was, what they thought were the most important legal barriers for them. And we also collected evidence regarding their familiarity with information sharing and information exchange, how frequently it happened, for example. The knowledge of those factors, the, the knowledge of national and international legal and regulatory uh, frameworks, and the extent to which these affected information sharing. So information exchange in the context of the work of certs is beset by some complex and awkward tensions with respect to the law. And some of these are particularly unique to Europe, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but firstly, it's important to note that certs are acting um, to maintain or improve security. So their mandate, if you like, their objectives are about security, keeping the network up and running, fixing the problem, mitigation, cleaning everything up, getting everything back to the state it was before the cyber attack. And this is particularly true given the unique role of national government certs. Now, national government certs are a construct which only uh, appears currently in Europe, and they're sort of like the US cert equivalent. So they're a, a peer amongst equals with the responsibility for acting as a focal point for critical information infrastructure protection at the national level in Europe. But in order to achieve these objectives, they have to impinge upon fundamental rights, and particularly this is the case with respect to the right to the protection of personal data. Now, in Europe, we have a different approach to privacy than over here, where even an IP address is considered as protected under the legal framework, and therefore companies, organisations, when processing this information, when sharing it, are obliged to follow certain, um, certain legal, legal rules. There's also the question about the uneven implementation of law across the EU. So, although at the European level, model codes are provided which can be implemented in member state, at the member state level, uh, the divergence in the implementation of that creates an issue in respect to these topics. Uh, there's uncertainty about what can and can't be done relating to the mandate of the CERT, whether it is or it is a, unable to, to, to send on information. And this could all lead to three types of possible consequences. Firstly, ignoring the problem, that is to say, carrying on with information sharing, perhaps in contravention of uh, the legal right for the protection of personal data. Creating overtly restricted policies which may hamper the achievement of these security objectives. Or finally, inefficiency in response, so taking too long to respond to the, to the query from the, uh, from the peer. Certs are familiar broadly with a range of legal factors which affect their ability to share information. Um, I've put up some of the uh, most common ones that were noted in our research here. So firstly, the definitions of computer network misuse, what actually constitutes an attack against an information system. Privacy and data protection legislation, unsurprisingly for Europe, was regarded as the most important legal framework uh, pertinent to information exchanges between certs. Uh, public sector reuse of information, or uh, as you would know it over here, freedom of information legislation. Rules regarding working with law enforcement, criminal procedure, for example. Intellectual property rights as well. Very often, certs may be acting in the context of a legal mandate from a larger organisation, which creates uncertainties about what they can and can't do, and what information they can and can't pass on. And finally, determining applicable law. So which legal framework applies? Is it data protection? Is it... Uh, national security legislation, is it uh, intellectual property rights? Those were some of the legal frameworks that were seen as uh, possible factors that could impede or encourage, in some respects, information sharing. And some were more or less applicable to the CERT community. So, again, going back to the point around uh, the national government CERTs being somewhat unique, um, intellectual property rights, for example, 
don't really apply as much if it's a, uh, a, a cert that's operating under, under a public service, public sector mandate. So this uh, graph here, I appreciate the text might be a bit small, to, but, but the thing to point around is almost two-thirds of respondents here were familiar with information exchange uh, less than more than once a, once a month. And this is not just between the certs and other organisations or the stakeholders within the national context, but it's cross-border as well. And so we, we asked really to what extent different legal aspects uh, were justified, were, were cited as a reason for both ends of the information exchange from the organisation requesting the information and the organisation receiving it. So this chart shows um, the uh, prevalence, the, the frequency of different legal aspects noted when certs are declining to give information to other certs. So this is on the receiving end. So a cert here is responding there. They have a, a request from a peer and they're saying, in most cases, the request is not com compatible with, with national law from our, from, our, from our evidence. And also compatibility with internal rules as well came up as a, came up as a concern. On the other side of the, uh, of the equation, so this is where the cert, the respondent, has asked for information from a, from a peer. Again, compatibility with the national law, uh, but also questions around the legality of the information request in and of itself and compatibility with national rules. So these really point to some conclusion that uh, greater transparency between different legal frameworks could potentially help to, to, help to address these issues. So an uncertain picture emerges with respect to, to sharing of information between certs. Um, certs are exposed to cross-border requests, but very few have their own internal legal expertise. Very frequently, they are able to try to call upon resources from either their parent organisation or perhaps a commercial lawyer or legal, uh, somebody with legal expertise outside the cert. Data protection, data retention. So data retention is time periods where it's possible to uh, uh, store personal identifiable information like IP addresses. And laws relating to working with law enforcement were seen by far and away as the most relevant. And interestingly, going back to this question of harmonisation, there was less familiarity with international legal frameworks than national laws, even though uh, national legislation in the European member states is supposed to be a more or less um, similar based on the model code that's set up at the European level. The final case study is concerning information sharing to tackle cybercrime. It's a bit more of a, of a broader case study in this respect because law enforcement has to deal with a wide range of people when it's trying to tackle cybercrime. So information sharing in this context is beset with some common problems. Firstly, across different cybercrime units, there are varying approaches to defining cybercrime. And this almost is the same kind of issue I talked about with respect to certs and their understanding of what actually constitutes computer network misuse. With respect to the information sharing between law enforcement and certs, certs are mandated to achieve particular objectives around security of the network, resilience, uh, cleanup, whereas law enforcement are motivated by investigation, prosecution, intelligence gathering. So there's some question about the misplaced incentives between these two parties there. Uh, the private sector is reluctant to share information. They're concerned about reputational loss and whether over the long term uh, sending a signal to the market that they've been attacked and they've had uh, hundreds of millions of dollars stolen could potentially affect their share price. And finally, from the perspective of the consumers and citizens, they may be also reluctant to share information on the basis of a number of different avenues 
being available, and there's a fragmentation about where, they can, where they're supposed to report cybercrimes and what, what will actually happen with the information once it gets reported. Will, any, will anyone actually action it and do anything with it? So looking at uh, the context of information sharing between law enforcement um, themselves, so this is within the, the context of peers of high-tech crime units, there are many different interpretations of what constitutes cybercrime across 15 countries. So we looked at, in our research, we conducted fieldwork visits to 15 different national high-tech crime units and asked them about different activities, what they were doing, how they defined cybercrime. And even within Europe, which supposedly has a common approach to things, um, there's quite a wide variety of difference here, ranging from countries focusing on e-banking attacks right through to countries saying, well, for us, cybercrime is about people misusing social networks or being, we're being asked to uh, undertake forensic analysis of material recovered from a crime scene from a traditional crime, shall we say, like murder or sorry, homicide or uh, drugs, drug trafficking. There are difficulties in obtaining a multinational intelligence picture. So in Europe, we have um, Europol, which is a sort of similar but not to the FBI. And Europol is, has a pan-European intelligence databases on cybercrime. But it has to rely on information from member states, from the national high-tech crime units, to feed this, this, this database. And the misplaced incentives could be at play here about countries saying, well, why should I contribute something to an intelligence database when I don't get anything back because the material I get back is of limited use? Contributions to intelligence sharing then can be subject to barriers, seen as little uh, return benefit. From a prosecutorial perspective, there's a need to show that it's our case. So the bosses of the high-tech crime units want to be able to say, we prosecuted this case, we investigated it, and we can recall this as our criminal justice statistics. Clearly, operating collaboratively, collaboratively across borders may introduce the, the, the risk that your case will be seen as a, as a success and recorded as a success in another country. And there's a question about the role of the public prosecutor as well. To what extent the law enforcement, the police guys, are actually working uh, under the direct guidance of a public prosecutor, or in some countries, the prosecutor has, more, uh, has, a, has less... Um, uh, flexibility in what he or she can, can and can't do. So there's a sort of an interesting question about the link between the law enforcement who go to investigate a, a case of cybercrime and the public prosecutor who then takes the decision whether or not to, to prosecute and try to get it to court. Some incentives and, and barriers for the private sector not to report cybercrime incidents. Well, chief amongst these, I guess, is the fear of reputational damage. Essentially, we heard from some private sector organisations in our study that they felt they were placing their stock price in the hands of the police when they were uh, discussing uh, incidences of, of cybercrime. And there's also concerns about onward disclosure of data, which goes back to my point about the role of the public prosecutor. So if I, as a bank, tell you, as the cybercrime police, that I've had an incident, um, but the cybercrime police are actually... Uh, uh, mandated by legislation to report that and to treat that as a crime, then I might be disincentivized to, to share that information. There's also a perception that uh, the competence of the private sector, particularly the financial institutions, out, out, uh, is, is, is greater than that of the law enforcement. And this really leads to the conclusion that a perception that they can fix the problem internally. We don't need the cops coming in. We can uh, sort out everything ourselves. There's a question of legal uncertainty, almost a mirror image, of those issues I talked about at the start, about which legal frameworks apply. Is this under a particular national security 
aspect or is it a uh, law enforcement uh, related issue? And a view of the competence of law enforcement. And this particularly goes to some questions about training and the skills of the police as well and how they match up to those other private sector stakeholders. And finally, there are a range of issues concerning how individuals, so victims or witnesses, uh, share information. So where you've perhaps been the victim of a cybercrime or you've witnessed something on the internet that you're not sure about, you think is a criminal act. Um, consumers are confronted with a range of avenues to report incidents, including their internet service provider, perhaps, as a first port of call. So in some European countries, there's law that exists that says that the ISP has to set up an abuse desk as a, as a help desk, as an email address where people can report uh, suspicious behaviour. Um, but there's also maybe an avenue to report an incident on the service provider. So maybe you're using a social network and you think you've been a, a victim of some kind of cybercrime. You can click on a link on the, on the web page and have something reported to the, to the operator of the social network. And finally, there's law enforcement as well. So I know in the US there is an online reporting mechanism and in a number of European countries... Uh, people are considering setting up these similar web forms where people can report a, a particular incident. There are also a range of behavioural issues which come into play, most notably uh, the question of free riding, which is to say that if I'm being attacked, if, if I'm a victim of a cybercrime, then uh, I don't need to, somebody else will fix it, there'll be some other mechanism, somebody else is doing, doing it, because there must be so many people that have been affected by this crime then, uh, that, that I don't need to do anything, and somebody else will come along and get in touch with me rather than me volunteering the information. <clears throat> And from the perspective of law enforcement, there was a concern that online reporting tools were seen to be of limited effectiveness. So when we spoke to law enforcement, they said that they'd much rather prefer to spend the resources on investigations, intelligence gathering, remote searches, than, um, than running one of these kind of online reporting systems. So, in conclusion, um, we reviewed information sharing across three domains. Each domain suggests that there are big differences between what theory says, particularly what the economic theory says about information sharing and operational practice. Looking at information exchanges, those participating in information exchanges value the quality of information as one of the main incentives to encourage them to share information. Privacy and data protection law, unsurprisingly perhaps for Europe, is seen as one of the most important legal factors for cross-border cooperation between certs. And from the perspective of tackling cybercrime, there are a range of different entities that law enforcement must interact with, each with their own particular sets of motivations and incentives. And policy makers, makers should be aware of these broad aspects when they're considering the nature of their interventions. Moving to some specific uh, implications, um, I know there's a lot of discussion at the moment about setting up the uh, legal frameworks for encouraging information sharing, particularly in the critical information infrastructure area. Um, and I think, I guess my point should be that, is that policy making should require a knowledge of these broader issues, not just framing things in the context of getting the economic incentives right, but a lot of other social behavioural issues that come into play as well. Um, the question about whether information sharing actually works is still open to some question. We have some anecdotal evidence where people are prepared to say, yes, I received something from an information exchange, I acted on it, and it solved a problem in my own organisation. But equally, there's a kind of paradoxical issue around if, you're, if you want to shout from the rooftops about the effectiveness, effectiveness of these mechanisms, that could potentially jeopardise the trust and the fact they're seen as a, as a sort of a closed uh, but trusted network. Um, describing under what circumstances 
information can be shared can improve transparency and help to build confidence. Now, what I mean by this is those things like the rules governing onward disclosure. So if a law enforcement officer was to say to a, a, perhaps someone from a bank, okay, if you tell me something, I'm going to tell you now, here are the circumstances under which I can control that information, and here's the point when the prosecutor gets involved, and I have to, I, I no longer have control of something you've told me. That could help improve confidence and in, increase transparency. And policy frameworks should take account of a wide range of these social, economic, and behavioural issues, and some of the work on behavioural economics uh, that some of the scholars are starting to do is, is, is starting to unpack that a little bit as well. Well, that concludes my presentation, and I'm um, very happy to take some questions from you uh, as we go. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.